hopefully everyone can get some chairs. I see tables that I had chairs at, and then they don't have chairs at the, like, the ends of them. So I guess they didn't want people sitting with them. Um, but if you do need a Bible, I preach from the CSB. There are those back there, and then also our church uses ESV a lot, so those are also back there as well. Um, but if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 4. How many of you guys like the opening one that we did with Adam and Eve? You guys like Adam and Eve? Nice. Three people really liked Adam and Eve, and then the rest just didn't care. Um, <laughs> you're like, yes, no. Um, all right, so to dive in, I think one of the biggest things, and it's funny that it happened only like, I mean, I think we all understand, like when we read scripture, we always want to see it from the lens of Christ. But it was truly studying through the story of Cain and Abel, and as I talked about calling them stories, sometimes it's a disservice, but the account of Cain and Abel, it really impacted my heart to really understand, like, man, like, we see pictures of Christ through and through. And so I tweaked a little bit of where I was trying to go with this message just because I, I, I had to go through with this. And so um, I just want you guys, as we keep going through these stories, to also follow that track to really, even if it might be something that I miss and you catch, then that's the way the Holy Spirit works, and I'm stoked. I'm stoked that he's able to show that to you, and then we can talk about it around our tables. Um, but as those thoughts were kind of going through my heart, as I was praying over this, this passage of Cain and Abel, um, I had listened to a message from Charles Spurgeon, who had preached specifically on the blood of Abel. And, and I was like, man, i got to refine it. So I found the, the actual like, uh, words or whatever it's called, the text of the, the sermon. And um, I wanted to read you guys this quote. I wanted to read you exactly what he wrote. And he said this. He says, this morning, as he's preparing the message and, and addressing his congregation, he says, This morning, we purpose to keep our discourse to the subject of the voice of the blood of Abel and the voice of the blood of Jesus as standing in comparison to one with another. They both spake. He spoke really old English. Um, this is evident. Abel being dead yet speaketh, says the apostle, and we know that our abiding comfort that the blood of Jesus pleads before an eternal throne. All blood has a voice, for God is jealous for its preservation. The blood of excellence and of just men has a more heavenly speech still. But the voice of the blood of Jesus far surpasses all, and among 10,000 voices it bears the palm. And it's this reality of Abel's voice spoke, and it, and it led to this discourse that we're about to go into, but yet... Christ's voice is that ultimate voice that spoke in the midst of millions of voices, tens of thousands of voices, Christ's voice reigns supreme. The blood of Christ is above all else. And that's the heartbeat that Charles was going into, and that's where I want to end with and kind of hit in the midst of our message tonight. But to kind of backtrack so we know, because I ended on a different part with Adam and Eve. I ended about Adam and Eve sinning, their eyes being opened. And they hid from God and God's own creation. And we, and we talked about the fact that God was so sovereign yet so intimate that he came in and asked where they were. Because he wanted that relationship still even though they fell. And so I wanted to go back just a little bit to Genesis 3 verses 13 through 19 to kind of set the stage for us. Because if we don't get that, then going into the Cain and Abel account is kind of goofy. But this is pretty much the consequence and the reality of the fall. And so it says in verse 13, So the Lord God asked the woman, What have you done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. 
he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Verse 15 is actually that first time we actually get a picture of the gospel being laid out for us. Going into verse 16, then it says for us, He said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children with painful effort. Your desire will be for your husband, and yet he will rule over you. And he said to the man, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree, of which I commanded you uh, do not eat uh, from it, the ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life, and it will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plant of the field. You will eat um, bread from the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground, since you were taken from it, for you are dust, and you will return to dust. And so we see everything that was so awesome about the relationship that we were going to have with God in the garden is now completely reversed, put upside down, and we are now going to labor in pain. Literally, women are going to labor in pain, and then we are going to labor as in work in pain. All these beautiful things that God had for us are now going to be painful, hard. There's going to be death, despair, destruction in the midst of them. And we even see that the organic relationship of male and female was now being distraught as well. So with that being said, we now dive into the narrative of Genesis 4, starting in verse 1. Verse 1 simply says, Then the man was intimate with his wife. We think we all know what that means. We're adults. And she conceived and gave birth to Cain. She said, I have had a male child with the Lord's help. And we always read the story, and I even read this verse, and I pushed through it almost immediately. I was just like, all right, we're getting into the story. Like, we got to go, we got to go. And then I stopped, and I, and I wondered, that last part caught me. You know, it said, I have had a male child with the Lord's help. And so it made me wonder, and I started nerding out, and I looked up Cain and Abel. I looked up just the meaning behind it. I looked up all that type of stuff, and I realized that Cain had a specific meaning to it, and it meant acquisition. And why is this so important to us and to the story? Well, you see, Eve was processing from the reality of the curse that she was just given and the promise that was just made. Eve was told that childbirth is going to be hard. Death is now a reality. But yet your seed is going to crush the head of the serpent. So she was thinking, boom, first kid I get, salvation, victory, we're golden. So Cain was that acquisition. He was that reality given to them as the promise that God had given in the garden. That's how she's thinking. And so Eve is clinging to this promise, but obviously we're only in verse 1, so we know there's more to the story, so now we have to see how that plays out. This shows us again, Eve, right? We all thought, how in the world could the snake deceive? Well, she already got the promise that God made and the command that God made in the garden wrong, and then the men just were dumb enough to follow. And now we see that she's clinging immediately to this hope. Right? which is not a bad thing to have, but she's clinging to this reality that Cain was the solution. That this must be the solution. This must be what we're going on. And obviously, we have 66 books to tell us otherwise. So what, what takes place now? Verses 2 through 5 is where we really get into the meat. So verse 2, she also gave birth to a brother Abel. Now Abel became a shepherd of the flocks, but Cain worked the ground. In the course of time, Cain presented some of the land produce as an offering to the Lord, and Abel also presented an offering. Some of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but he did not regard for Cain. He had no regard for Cain and his offering. Cain was furious and he looked despondent. So if we go back to verse two, we now see that there's there's the, uh, a younger brother and there's jobs now being presented. 
And again, if you just run through it, you're just like, all right, one was a shepherd and one was a farmer. Sweet. But God is so good in the pictures that he gives. Because Cain worked the ground and toiled the earth, which was a reality of the fall. So we see Cain is already now giving us a depiction of the reality of after the fall, what was man told to do. You were going to work for your food instead of having all this green vegetation that's freely for you to eat. It was self-producing. It was there. It was beautiful in the garden right before the fall. But now that man had fallen, we now had to work and sweat and toil for even things that were just going to nourish us. So we see Cain is now working that. And yet Abel was as a shepherd of the flock of livestock, which is the reality of the original design. So Cain was a picture, actually, for us of the original fall, whereas Abel, the younger brother, the second, was a picture of the original design. Just as Adam named the animals and all these different things he was overseeing, whereas Cain was working and toiling. And verse 3 is kind of this. I read probably way too many commentaries into this. But I was thankful I did because it gave me solitude and it gave me hope of where I was going. And it really answered a big picture for me because we just go from the fall and then all of a sudden they're sacrificing stuff. I think for most of us, we just kind of, again, blow over it and we just assume that's what it says, but we really don't have a context for it. And that's why I love that there's even just these little phrases like in the course of time in verse 3. Well, if we look back at Revelation, wow, that's looking way forward. Uh, If we look back in chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, it says, The man named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all the living. The Lord God made clothing from the skins of animals for the man and his wife, and he clothed them. That reality is the fact that there was now death because of sin. The animals didn't just freely go, oh, yeah, let me just give you my skin. I'll grow new ones. Animals had to be killed to take their skin and make clothes to cover their nakedness, the literal and the physical nakedness. We we talked about the naiveness, the evil that they had. They now had the knowledge of good and evil. They now knew, ooh, we're both naked. That's awkward. When that was never meant to be, they were meant to just be with each other. They were open to all these things. So we see that there was a payment for sin. We see that sacrifice was already now being instilled into the framework of life because of the fall. And so when it gives us that, that easement of saying in the course of time, it shows us that there's obviously been time for Cain and Abel to grow up. They weren't just little infants going, here's fruit. Like they were probably at least, I mean, I know kids work at every age nowadays, but old enough to understand what being a shepherd was, old enough what it was to work the land, old enough to understand that there is a sacrifice, there is a representation that we now have to do to appease God. So Adam and Eve were training their children. And that means in verse 4, that gives us the context for what happens next in verse 4. Right? In verse 4, it goes back and says, And Abel also presented an offering, some of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. You see, Cain simply gave a portion of his produce, right? Cain just was like, ah, here's some zucchini. Hope it appeases you. Whereas Abel actually took the finest firstborns of his flock, and not even just that, but the fat portions, and said, Lord, everything that I know I need to survive, everything that is good of my, my flock, all the things that would give me a head in life, I'm giving first to you. It didn't say he gave the blemish lamb or, or Bambi with the broken leg. 
He gave the firstborn, and he gave the fat portions with it. Vital things to his life. He gave it in that sense of, God, I know you're still going to provide, and yet you deserve the best of the best. You know, in context, like I said, we see this sacrificial, we see this worship, and, and if we start diving into this story, we can almost start seeing it wrong, where we're like, oh, well, the sacrifice obviously is a work. So, like, we got to work to appease God. But I want you to pay close attention to how Scripture lists the sacrifices. Cain simply just gave some produce. Abel gave the best of it. The difference between the two is not the action. As we dive into this a little more, we're going to see it is their heart. Abel's heart was different than Cain's. And we see that when it says God regarded Cain, Abel's, and yet he did not have any regard for Cain. And Cain was what? Cain was furious, and he looked despondent. This is setting the stage for religion without relationship. And I will say this until I'm blue in the face. I'm tired of hearing, it's not religion, it's relationship. No, it's both. It's because of this truth that we have, this religion that is set in place, this religion that tells us the gospel, the real gospel, that we can have a relationship now with God. There's still rules to follow. There's still commands given. Religion. But when I understand that it is through faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone, that I can have that relationship. There's parameters on that means to salvation. And we even see that here. Verse 5, this is how we know that the heart was not sitting right with Cain because it says that he was furious and despondent. Despondent is this low in spirit, this hopelessness. It wasn't just like he was like, oh man, I gave a bruised zucchini. Try better next time. He was, dis he was distraught. He was despondent. He was, his spirit was bruised and broken. That is how just he was upset and blinded to what was truly going on. And that takes us into verse sixes, sixes, 6 and 7. 6 and 7 says, And then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you furious and why do you look despondent? If you do what is right, won't you be accepted? But if you don't do what is right, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. See, and I, again, it astonishes me, and I love that. I, I think I might get more out of this series than you guys ever will, but I just love the fact that God asks questions. Adam and Eve, where are you guys? You, you really? Like, he knows. It's his creation. He made the garden. He put them in there. He knew. Cain, why are you frustrated? Cain, why are you despondent? Cain, why are you low in spirit right now? Well, obviously, God, don't you know? <laughs> you picked his over mine. It's obvious. And yet we see that he's building this intimate relationship with his people. But it also shows us something. It also shows us a very applicable point. That just because someone does us wrong, someone gets frustrated with us, someone gets annoyed with us, it doesn't mean we just ride them off. See, the, world, the world's all about that. Block people, shut them down, you know, cancel culture, all this stuff. We just don't like it, so we're just going to shut you down. That's why having strictly online relationships sucks. Because your friends can just ditch you, and you have no reason. Why did their internet go out, or do they hate you? You just don't know. But for them, they're still in the midst of just 
this new creation, this world that we've brought, brought in, this humanity. But verse 7, I think, gives us two major themes. A, through salvation and also on God's providence. You know, we see that God made the statement, if you do right, won't you be accepted, which would trigger a lot of us to think, again, works-based. Right? It, would, it, it gives us that trigger. But it's the follow-up into that question that shows us, again, that it's so much deeper than the work that was done or the offering that was given. Because it says, if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. I just can't rule over the sin of my heart with actions. That is the works-based way. Just do more good than bad, and God's going to let you into the pearly gates. Good luck. The bad's going to pile up fast. The good's going to come very little. So what's he talking about? He's talking about that it's, it's that heart, the desire. Sin is encroaching by the door. Satan is waiting for you to give in. And this is that reality that we read about when we did our James study, chapter 1 and 2. It talks about that faith and works. You see, when we are faced with trials and temptations, we have a choice to make, either remaining in the faith and standing firm against sin or giving in to it and feeding the flesh of man in direct disobedience to God. You see, again, we're working out of the framework that obviously their parents were teaching them, here's the reality of sin. Or there would never be an account of why they were giving sacrifices. We have to understand that they, they were told about the heart. They were told about knowing good and evil. There's that moral premise behind there. Not just this do aimless works. And so God is working with Cain for him to see that with a right heart, there is communion with him and there is resistance against sin and Satan. But without the right heart, we surely will be devoured. Sin is waiting for you to mess up. Sin is waiting for you to just willingly walk into its trap and say, screw God. Screw what is right. It feels so good to be angry. It feels so good to do what I think is right. And we see what happens when Cain does this in verse Eight. Verse 8, it says, Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother and killed him. You see, the interaction and the warning given by God is completely overlooked. God literally just talked to him and said, you do what is right. Like, if you have a correct heart, you can overcome the sinful nature. But if you keep walking down the path of your frustration and your despondence and what you want, it's going to go really bad. And obviously, we now see the outcome of his frustration, of his despondence. Right? We see that his heart, which was angry, his heart that was broken, his heart that was furious against God and Abel. Instead of dealing with that, he allowed that heart to power his actions to where he literally had to go have a cognitive conversation knowing what he was about to go do, because he talked to him, hey, let's go out to the field. Any of you guys ever read of Mice and Men? Hey, let's go out to the field, George. <laughs> right? They, he knew what he was doing for the four people I just made that illustration for. <laughs> but he willingly took him out to the field, knowing what he was going to do, knowing he was going to murder him. We talked about this when we talked about sin. It's never just this accidental, whoopsies, the rock just fell on my hand, and I smacked him with it. It was just a twitch. 
He chose from the frustration. He chose from the anger. He chose from disobeying God to be autonomous and try to rule himself and to rule his own heart. And what happened? He killed his brother. So let's go to verse 9 and 10. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. I'm my bro- Am I my brother's guardian? Then he said, what have you done? Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Again, I love this. I just, <laughs> like God is still interacting with Cain. Like there's still this intentionality and this, this pursuing of God. While Cain is just blatantly a dirty, rotten sinner being disobedient literally just going like, what am I? My brother's guardian? And then I love the fact that in verse 10 it says, he, God answers his own question, right? You love when parents do that when they're scolding you? We've all been there. I've been there my whole life, right? It's just, they ask the question knowing the answer. But they want to give you the chance to still respond, and maybe the punishment won't be as bad because if we own up 10 minutes earlier, you're not getting 15,000 whoopings. I say that from experience. But he literally says it. He says, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. We now see the reality of God's sovereignty again because it it doesn't say God, Cain, and Abel went out to the field and God kind of just watched him smack him in the face. But what it does tell us is that God in his sovereignty knew. He knew the heart. That's why we have those trigger words of frustration, furious, despondent, God, again, is trying to paint that picture for us that this story isn't just because someone got murdered. The lesson of Cain and Abel is is not don't murder. It's a great lesson overall. We shouldn't kill each other. But that's not the heartbeat that we always thought it would be of Cain and Abel. And I hope I'm slowly painting that picture for us. And this, again, would be where we would say, well, God's asking questions, so obviously he doesn't know. Well, he proves that wrong in verse 10 because he literally answers, Cain's, Abel's blood is crying out to me from the ground. It's again wanting to bring us back to that reality of God's intentionality, both with the faithful and the unfaithful. Both with the faithful because he said the blood cries out, there will be justice. And with the unfaithful saying, golly, dude, get it through your head that I am sovereign, that I know And that there is a way different path you could be taking if you just let yourself not be Lord anymore. And I wish I could give you the most intricate theological breakdown of God's sovereignty and his intentionality, and I can't, and I don't have to. His word gives it to us as clear as day in examples like this. So I can have faith knowing that it's true, that they're balanced. And in that verse 10, the blood cries out, Like, this part for me is what honestly hit me the most, and I thought about even stopping here tonight, but that would be a disservice to the full story. But the blood cries out. It makes me think about the countless of people who, we are so blessed in this country to walk around and and even have gatherings like this, where in other countries, as soon as you even just have a Bible, you get shot. The countless of explorers and people who took prison ships and got in prison so they could bring the gospel to new countries. 
The Reformation where people were literally hung, crucified, beaten so they could put the Bible back in the common folk's hands. Burned at the stake for saying, no, it is not by works, but by faith alone. And this verse, Hebrews 12, 24, that Charles Spurgeon was talking about, it says, And to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the, sprinkling of, and to the blood of sprinkling, that speaketh better things than Abel. God speaks through the blood of his people. The gospel has always gone forth. Stephen was stoned to death. And because of that, the gospel went out to Syria and to the other worlds. Because he died. It's not that it cut off the head of Christianity and they solved the problem. Because of his death, the gospel spread forth. Because they took a risk, the gospel moved forward. Because Abel was faithful, he was killed. And because of his blood, there would be justice. And yet it is in Christ Jesus' blood that speaks louder than any other voice of blood that there will ever be. Listen, your testimony is pretty cool. I love your testimony. I, loved, I, wanna, I hope by the end of my life, I get to hear all of your guys' stories of how you got saved and surrendered your life to Jesus Christ. But you know what? Your testimony is not the gospel. So all of you guys who have, and I'm guilty of this. Why? Oh, I shared my testimony with them. Hopefully they get to meet Jesus now. Well, did you give them the gospel? Well, no, but I talked about Jesus and how he changed my life through the gospel. Then you've done nothing. If you're really wanting to say you go out and share the gospel, share the gospel. Use your story to share it, but actually get to the gospel with your story. Don't glorify all the crap you did and then go, well, God changed me and now I'm a youth leader at my church. You just spent 30 minutes telling me about how you did all this dumb stuff and in five minutes you served the Lord? No. Christ's blood speaks louder than all else. So let that be the center of your story. Just as we learned in Adam and Eve, God is the center of the story, not man. Let the blood of Christ ring louder than any suffering you go through. Verse 11. So now you are cursed, alienated from the ground that opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood you have shed. If you work the ground, you will never again give you its yield. You will be a relentless wanderer on the earth. Verse 11 and 12. So here we see the punishment of Cain's sin. And I think this is crazy that he's actually cursed specifically. See, Adam and Eve come to the reality of their sin. They repent and there's growth, right? They actually talk with God. They respond to God. They go, yeah, you're right. We messed up. And God clothed them. Whereas this whole time, Cain either is ignoring God or he straight up is disrespectful to God. So Cain, like Satan, is the root of the problem, and he did not answer or commune with God, even when God asked. So there was a punishment to punish uh, for the penalty. And so we, are told, uh, so we are told that the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, we have now just witnessed what the one and only true division is among humans. It's not race. It's not gender. It's not political party. It's not where you stand on Ukraine and Russia. Are you his or are you the world's? 
Are you of the seed of the woman or of the seed of the serpent? That is the only division that we have in this life. And that division doesn't lead to hatred. That division leads to compassion for those who are not with Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate seed of the woman. Because all the division that this world's trying to give us always leads to what? Hate. If someone walked around you and go, yeah, if you're a staunch Republican, yeah, I'm a Democrat. You're just like, good, I hate you. That's the truth, especially of your generation. Because of social media, you have the strongest voice with your clips and the TikToks and the tweets and all this stuff, the Snapchats. You guys have such a massive platform, and we use it to just cause division and hatred, and we take snippets of what people say, and then we attack them for it. But that really the only true division is whether we are in Christ Jesus or are we out. The seed of the woman, the seed of the serpent. But we, we see that there's potential hope because God could have just struck Cain down, right? Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Am I right? Some of the guys in here are probably like, yeah, I've used that verse before when I fought somebody. <laughs> Wrote it on my knuckles right before I punched them. But I, I just love it that there's still this potential hope for Cain. Verse 13 through 16 is where we end out. But Cain answered the Lord, my punishment is too great to bear. Since you are banishing me today from the face of the earth, I must hide from your presence and become a relentless wanderer on earth. Whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord replied to him, in that case, whoever kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. And he placed a mark on Cain so that whoever found him would not kill him. And in verse 16, then Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. We had hope. Man, we had hope. And then Cain opened his mouth. You see, Cain was so enveloped in his sin and the hatred in his heart that he didn't care anymore about the relationship with God. He didn't care anymore about the sacrifice he even made in the beginning. What he cared about was now the punishment was too big for him to bear. It's like when we get in trouble and all of a sudden we're like, we're grounded for three weeks. All I did was steal from the convenience store. Okay, be thankful it's only three weeks of grounding. But in our eyes, we're like, this is so unfair. And I know most of us aren't getting grounded anymore. I think, hopefully not. Hopefully most of you are past that point of being grounded. But consequences. I mean, I talked to people at my old job who they were like, they literally, one of them got arrested. And I can't, I know, but I can't remember for what, but it was justified completely. And yet he was so concerned with, like, the penalty and the payment that he had to do. I'm like, you literally, like, he, like, broke something, vandalized something, hit something with his car. I'm like, the fine you're paying, the, the, the time you're spent locked up is minimal compared to the damage you did to someone else's life. But you're too blinded by your own sin and self-centeredness that you can't see it. I've told that story before when I was a prison chaplain, and the guy said him and his son were in because it was a fluke. They were serving time together because it was a fluke. His son had two open warrants out for his arrest, and he blew three stop signs drunk while they were in the car together. They were meant to be in jail, rightfully so. But they didn't see it because they were so wrapped up in what they thought they deserved and what they wanted and what their life was meant to be like. And that's where Cain is at. He's more worried about being killed himself 
So strong is the guilt and the disobedience that he figured running even further away would somehow fix the problem. And I think we do that a lot of the times. When we mess up, we're walking with the Lord and things are going so good and all of a sudden we sin and we fall, right? We get that knock to the knees and we just feel distraught, furious, upset, distant. If you're honest with yourself, there's a lot of times where what you should do is stand right back up and go, God, forgive me. I'm so sorry and keep pushing forward. But what a lot of us do is they're like, well, we've already gone this far. Am I wrong? Well, I've already told the lie, so now I just got to keep it going this one time. You know, me and my significant other, we already crossed this one line, so like what's the next line going to do? You know, we've already do this much, why not have sex? You know, all my friends are out partying and drinking underage. I've already done it once and gotten away with it. I know I feel guilty about it, but like I haven't been caught, so like maybe God's not upset about it. Let me go break the law some more. I'm already this far in. But we see the reality of what that thought process gets us. It's not like God's just like, oh, cool, they're pushing the line. But man, the way God reacts to Cain and his stupidity is beautiful. Wouldn't it, it would be easy, right, if God was just like, yeah, I don't have to strike you down. Someone else will kill you. You right, then the problem's solved and done. And yet God, golly, God in his gracious mercy said, you know what, I'm going to put a mark on your back. And that way, if anyone knows what you did to your brother, who was actually probably a great guy, faithful, great shepherd, there's probably going to be a lot of people ticked, mostly because all of them are probably family still on earth. They are Adam and Eve's kids. They're probably going to be a little ticked. And yet, they're not going to harm you. This mark will be on you. See, we don't know much about Cain's life after, except that he had some family lineage. He had some places that are very prominent later on in Scripture, attested to the people. And then we actually just see one of them that they mentioned who is Lamech, who is just one next step into depravity from Cain. Because Lamech murdered somebody, and he was proud of it. He was so proud of it. And they reminded him of, like, hey, like, Cain had, like, a mark on his back. He's like, let my mark be even more so, like, testing God now. He had fallen so deep into sin that he's like, I want to test God. I want to test if he's truly who he says he is. That's how depraved humanity has become. And you say, Mitch, you might be reading too far into it, and that's where I love 1 John 3. God will always bring us into full summation. 1 John 3, uh, verse 11 and 12, it says, For this is the message you have heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Love God, love others, right? Which Cain did neither. Why? He was of the evil one. Satan is cunning, and in our sin, we are willing to follow him. Yet the blood of Jesus cries louder and stronger towards us. You see, when we are without Christ, you are of the evil one. You are so dead in your sin that you are so willing to follow. We're free. No one can tell me what gender I am. No one can tell me what my responsibilities are. No one can tell me how I should live my life or respect relationships. If I do what is right in my own eyes, I'm golden. And I think there's about six books in the Old Testament where it talks about people doing what is right in their own eyes and how they are stupid. 
And most of them were kings. You see, I love that John ends it with, oh, where am I at? Okay. Um, Unlike Cain was the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his deeds were evil and his brother was righteous. I love that he, fi- he finishes off that way. We see it. We can now go back to the sacrifices. He sacrificed out of righteousness, whereas Cain sacrificed out of just obligation. He sacrificed out of just exterior motive because it was the right thing to do. Abel did it because he knew it was the only way to have a right relationship, that if he showed that reality of, I know I'm a sinner and I know it's only through you that I can have peace and salvation again that I want to give you everything that I have because I know you will provide for me so much more. And with the story of Cain and Abel, I think there are two key doctrines that I wanted to give you guys. There are two key doctrines, and I, like I said, I'm going to try and do this with every time we go into an account of a, of a Sunday at school story. The first one is the doctrine of God's sovereignty. And I think a lot of us struggle with that. A lot of us struggle with the fact that God is all-knowing, all-purposeful, all-powerful, that he's everywhere. I think a lot of us have a hard time saying, well, if God is sovereign, why did this happen? And this was the best summation that I could really come up with as I was working through. And it is the doctrine and reality that God, being creator and ruler of all things, is fully in control of all the inner and outer workings of his creation. The hard balance comes to us when we try to fully comprehend or even take control of this fact. We will fail horribly. Trying to understand the evil of this world and balance it with God being completely in control can take us down a very dark path. But yet we are his creation and we call him father. If we are in his blood, if we are in the, in the son, if we are one of his, he is our father. That means as earthly parents, They are way wiser and usually smarter than their children, right? Don't put your hand on the stove. It's hot. And then we go, you're a liar. And then we do it. Guess who was right? Our parents. They knew. That's why they warned us. They they were more powerful. They were more knowledgeable of the stove than six-year-old Mitch who decided to slap both hands on the burner. Right? And that's the relationship that we are seeing that God is wanting for us. And he's so much, and I know a lot of you probably have great parents, God is better because he is sovereign. And yet he works with us in intimate ways. Cain, where is your brother? Adam and Eve, where are you? Why did this happen? Why? Because as a father, he's trying to work with us. He's trying to grow us to become more like him. And so God's sovereignty means that what he wills and wants will ultimately take place and come to pass around us, in us, and through us. God is ultimately in control, but we can never see this doctrine without the reality of another one. And that is the doctrine of God's providence, of how his providential, how he works in and through creation. We talked about that. Genesis, day seven, God rested into his creation. God didn't just make creation, make humanity, place us in the garden and say, good luck. God rested into creation because he wanted to experience it with humanity. And so God's providence, this one I couldn't come up with on my own, so I had to quote a guy. And J.I. Packer is always a solid guy to go to. 
He says, clearly thinking about God's involvement in the world process and in the acts of rational creatures requires complementary set of statements. Thus, a person takes actions. I, I choose to move my arm. Or an event is triggered by nat- natural causes, floods, earthquakes, volcanoes erupting, tsunamis, if, you, if we think about Asia. These drastic events, these things natural, right? We think they're natural hurricanes. Or Satan shows his hand. Just someone does something demonic. School shootings. People getting raped. Abortions. We see Satan showing his hand in society. Yet God overrules. And that simple statement for me, I think, explained it the best. And And he used the notion of look at the book of Esther. God isn't mentioned in that book. And yet we see his hand through the whole thing. The whole reason that book is given to us, A, there's a lot of good history and true fact in it, but there is such beauty in his providence of what takes place. The, literally the whole book goes one way and then immediately in the middle of it, it flips. It's the most beautiful picture. If you ever just walk through the story of Esther, you see a direct flip from persecution to restoration and it's gorgeous. I encourage you to study through that book. So that is the story of Cain and Abel, or the account of. And my heart and prayer are these three points um, that I think, if, hopefully you've gotten other stuff from it, but if not anything else, these, that point number one is the heart behind your actions will always speak louder than your actions. A lot of us can do a lot of good things. A lot of us can do a lot of great things. A lot of us can do a lot of nice things. But man, as soon as that action is triggered by self-indulgent, pride, self-centeredness, it is the worst action you could possibly do. But when you hold the door open for Aunt Betsy and you do it because, golly, you know she's probably distraught. You know she's probably by herself. She's 90. She's probably past three husbands by now. She's just looking for a friendly face. And you don't just hold the door open for her. You say, hey, I hope you have a wonderful day. God bless. And you're doing it, you're like, God, thank you for that opportunity. You're not yelling it out loud, maybe, but in your heart, you're saying, God, thank you that I could show her that kindness. Because guess what? She's going to turn around and give you that smile. Sometimes they usually turn around and just look at you funny because you're talking to them. But on the inside, I think they know. But point number two, the sinner saved by grace will always have an impact and a peace even in death. But the sinner dead in his sin, in, in sin, will have no peace even in life. See, as Paul says it, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Man, if I die serving the Lord and loving the Lord with all my heart, dying is just the beginning. And I have peace now to leave each day that way. But man, if I don't have Christ Jesus, I will live a life with no peace, no hope, no true sanity. And that's while I'm still alive, let alone what I have to face at judgment. So have hope as Abel's blood spoke louder than probably his own words. We don't really even get any words in Scripture, but we get that his blood, re- his blood spoke and it reached to God. Even in death, we have purpose, we have points, we have peace. And point number three is rest in God's sovereignty and his providential hand. 
Rest in those facts. Rest that God is in complete control, and yet he works in and through creation. He walks with us like Adam and Eve in the garden. If we have Christ Jesus as our Savior, he is with us always. When we simply are faithful to God and his word, the rest will fall into place. Whether we want it to look a certain way or not, it's going to ultimately work out for our good. That's what I love about Romans 8. He will work together all things according to those who love him and according to his will. It's not like he's just like, hey, you love me? All right, you want a Mercedes? Here you go. It's no, it's according to God's will, which you know is going to be good because you love him. Amen? All right. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to go into our small group table time part. We're probably going to need to grab more chairs because there's some tables that decided to just not have them. Um, but let's bow our heads. We'll go into that time. If you still need the questions, they're on that back table. But guys, I pray that through this story, you saw more than just do not murder. I pray you saw something so much more greater, which is please don't go out and kill people. It's not what I'm condoning when I say there's more than just do not murder because that's still part of it. So don't go kill people, but see God's sovereignty. See God's providence. See the intimate relationship that God wants with each and every one of us. Father, just thank you for this time. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for your son, ultimately, who came and his blood spoke louder than Abel's. God, I pray for all of us in this room that we now can study these stories that we probably glance over a lot of the times because we've heard them so many times in Sunday school or Awanas or from our parents growing up. God, I pray we dive back into them and actually see the rich depths of wisdom and knowledge and truth that you've put in them. And not only that, but how ultimately all of them give us these pictures of Jesus Christ. God, that blood, and I can't, I can't, I don't want to move past from it ever, Lord. And I pray none of us in this room ever think we're too good for the gospel. God, the fact that you sent your son to die on the cross and pay for our sins and then conquer the grave and then sit at your right hand again so that if I surrender my life to him, I can be born again. God, if, if that ever gets stale for me, I pray you smack me over the head with it. And I pray that for every single person in this room, Lord, that we never grow old of hearing the gospel and the good news so much so that we can't help but share it with all of those around us. No matter where we are at in the Bible, it's making us encouraged to go share Jesus Christ. God, I pray over this time that we now dissect these questions, that we don't just answer the questions and answer them and talk about random stuff for the time being. God, I pray as we sit around these tables, we have heartfelt conversation, and as, uh, as adults sitting at tables, that we lead the conversation with each other, that we, that we ask deeper questions, that we speak about these truths in a way that is purposeful and impactful, that we don't just flippantly talk about nothing or, or just become belligerent and have nonsense conversations during this time, but that we use it to empower us to walk out these doors later tonight and live differently or to simply just be held humble by the gospel. God, we love you so much, and we pray this all in your son's name, Jesus. Amen.